Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back for another episode. Last week, I took a look at how a person's financial plan can be sabotaged by children. And I specifically addressed the scenario where the parents have a financial planner, and typically one that they've had in place for many years, decades. And some of what I have seen, and and of course, this is not in every case, it's the minority of cases. But when children step in, when the parent, maybe the the loss of one parent, when there's enough cognitive decline that the power of attorney is needed to be executed on, but for whatever reason, the children step in. And sometimes, because of the huge learning curve there is, not to, not to the parents' best interest. And I went through especially how this can be with a advice-only planner, or a fee-only planner who charges a fee, which is always represented in dollars, not percentages. And how this in itself can be a huge learning curve to the child. And how sometimes the fee seems so exorbitantly high when expressed in dollar terms and not percentages that an almost adversarial relationship forms immediately between the child and the planner with the child being on the aggressive wanting to understand, and that probably is too kind of a word, exactly what the planner is doing to charge such a high fee. So that was the context of that particular episode. And as I got thinking about this over the week, as you know, my episodes are not heavily scripted. I thought, well, probably what I didn't do was to discuss more of the emotional pitfalls of what's going on and what can be done by both parents and children to try and avoid this really unfortunate outcome. And I'm not sure I did a podcast on this, but I remember years ago, I had a client where we had everything in place for her. She was single, didn't have any children. I mean, I think the closest person to her might have been a niece. And we set everything up with executors and power of our attorneys and things to make sure that she was well cared for. Unfortunately, what we didn't plan for was for her to destroy her plan. And in that kind of gray area of cognitive decline, a what we think was a annuity salesman got a hold of her and made a very, very nice commission off of her on a product that she didn't need and largely destroyed years of uh, financial planning. So that's when I realized, wow, the hardest person <laughs> to protect against is myself. And I've had a little taste of this 
Recently, I had a really bad pneumonia that lasted for weeks, well into five, six weeks. And during that time, I understood how the things that were the easiest to do for me, for myself, normally became so effortful, so hard. And my cognitive abilities declined. I mean, in the depths of this, I was maybe at 25% of capacity. And, and that's rather scary. And I also understood the challenges of taking care of yourself when nobody else is there to care for you because my wife was very busy and out of town caring for her elderly parents at the time. So this has kind of sensitized me to how quickly we can decline and how we can really need the help of other people. So in trying to avoid a situation where especially kids can dismantle a very well laid financial plan, what can we do? I think the first thing to understand is the kids typically do not set out to torpedo their client, their their parents' financial plan. Quite oppositely, they have the best intentions. They want to take care of mom or dad. They want to be really attentive and making sure that they've got their back and to be an advocate. So the the issue isn't poor intention. Now, in some cases, there there is poor intention. I can get into that a little bit later. But in, in most cases, there's a solid intention. And I will say in most cases, the, the kids will be very open to learning and listening from the financial planner that has helped their parent, like I said, usually for decades. But in some cases, there's parts of the child that become very suspicious. And I'll tell you when this usually happens. It usually happens when they become aware of the fee. And now I'm I'm talking very specifically here about a fee-only financial planner, a fee-for-service financial planner, where the fee is communicated in dollars and not percentages. And we talked about this last week. And it's so hard for our brains to, to, to understand that 2% on a million dollars is twice as expensive as $10,000 fee on a million dollars. So this is usually where things start going off the rails and can become very adversarial and can end up with the child terminating the services of the financial planner and either doing it on their own or going to another planner who oftentimes charges in percentages and they're unaware of that and they end up paying twice as much and oftentimes getting less service. So what can a parent do? Well, I would start with this. Consider appointing only one power of attorney. We've kind of, I think we've talked about this in in past podcasts, that often there's an emotional a component of equality and fear of favoring one child above the another. And so they appoint every child they have as a co-agent holding a power of attorney. The power of attorney is different from an executor on a will. The power of attorney is someone that can make officially binding decisions on your behalf when you can't. Typically, it's a pretty poor decision for you to have two, three, I've seen up to six powers of people holding the power of attorney. 
in, in a way that they all have to agree usually. So I would consider naming one power of attorney. And that is someone who understands money, understands investments, and understands your financial situation. That may not be someone related to you. And we'll talk about in a minute how sometimes it's actually advantageous not to have someone related to you serve as your power of attorney. So the second thing then is to be sure that the person holding your power of attorney knows that they hold that power. You know, because of the, the taboo of talking about money, oftentimes parents do not communicate to their children that they have selected one to be the power of attorney. There can be all sorts of reasons for this, but they oftentimes the child that holds the power of attorney doesn't know until it's needed, till they need to make a decision. And this is really unfortunate and hurtful, both to the child holding the power of attorney and to the parents. And sometimes there can be, well, I don't want them to know that they have a hold the power of attorney because they might abuse it. Well, now this is a fear, right? It's definitely a money script. And I often say, well, you probably do not want to be appointing anyone as a power of attorney that you don't trust. So if that is a thought, that's really got to be explored. Why don't I trust this person? And what's behind me selecting someone that I don't trust? Is it a should and ought to? Well, I should select one of my kids. I don't trust them to be able to carry out the financial decisions, but I have to select a child. Well, no, we don't. And then, then the next item that is involved with that is you know, when you have a power of attorney, involve that person, whether it's a child or not, in your meetings with your financial planner long before you anticipate that their services would be needed. And of course, we can't anticipate when a power of attorney's services are going to be needed. In most cases, it comes on somewhat suddenly, a cognitive decline, not so much. But this gives the person holding the power of attorney, and we're talking financial power of attorney here, a chance to form a relationship with the planner. It gives them a chance to see the interaction between the parent and the planner. It gives them a chance to understand the philosophy behind tax decisions, estate planning decisions, investment decisions, so that when their services are needed, when they need to step in and make those financial decisions, they're not overwhelmed with a new person and new information and trying to, to grasp all of this so suddenly. And it can really, really benefit both the parent and the child. So you've heard me talk about this before, how it's so crucial that anyone that's a trustee, a successor trustee, holds a power of attorney, is an executor of a will, knows long before they're needed, that there's, they are, are named, that they're willing to serve in that capacity, and that you're willing to start including them 
in your financial life for your own best interest in theirs. Now, what if you don't have a child or you don't have a child that is knowledgeable about finances or you don't have any child that you really, really trust? What do you do then? What you want to consider is appointing a very knowledgeable friend or a professional as your power of attorney. And there are some trustees that will serve as a power of attorney. There are some firms that are in the business of advocating that will consider serving as your power of attorney. There are other resources that you can look to outside of children. And here's another reason why, of course, to do that, again, we got to oftentimes set a, a step outside of a money script. Money script that says it would be an affront to your, your children not to select them as a power of attorney. It would be a sign of distrust, which it could be, right? But I can't really tell my kids I don't trust them. I need to carry through and make them a, a power of attorney. Just all of these money scripts that can, can pop up. But here's a, another reason why appointing someone that is not related to you and is not a beneficiary of the will or trust may be optimum. Because if you appoint a competent agent who's not a beneficiary, then they have no conflict of interest. And this is something to consider. I haven't seen a lot of it, but I have seen it where kids appointed as a power of attorney, and in some cases, non-related children, because this particular client didn't have children that were appointed. As I interacted with them, I discovered it wasn't the well-being of the parent that was first and foremost. That in some cases, what is first and foremost on the minds of some heirs is maximizing what they receive in the will. And this can involve a number of decisions. I've seen them be trustees of trusts where they will try and dole out as little as possible, where in some cases they convince the parent to give them gifts to get money out of their estate when they really can't afford to get money out of their estate, or there is a misunderstanding, this is really typical of the income of the inheritance taxes, thinking that there's going to be a big inheritance tax state upon death. And right now you've got to have like $12 million or more to pay any inheritance tax. Another common thing that I see is well, let's get all of the money out of mom or dad's estate so that they can qualify for Title 19. Because if they're, if a person is broke, you can qualify for state assistance, which is called Title 19. It's Medicaid. Well, there's all sorts of parameters around this. And one of them being that most people don't realize is it's, it's all, you have to give all your money away with over five years before you need those services. So you have to be broke a long time or the state will claw it back from whoever it was given to. And oftentimes, it isn't the, the well-being of the parent that is 
in the forefront here. It's more the well-being of the beneficiaries that they receive as much as possible. And I have been witness to these intentions very blatantly at times. So if you have somebody that's not related to you as a power of attorney making these decisions, it can remove, again, that conflict of interest. And the, the big, like I said, the big emotional hurdle around this is, is just fraught with the relationship with family, with loved ones, with kids that you ought and should be appointing your kids. It's kind of like with the societal money script that good parents will pay their children's college tuition and to, to the detriment of their own retirement. And we know research shows that the more loving thing to do would be to have the kids pay their own way through college and you take care of your retirement because the kids will pay three to seven times the cost of a college education taking care of a parent that hasn't taken care of themselves. So tons of money scripts, tons of vulnerable emotions that are really wrapped up in this. Another thing that you can do is actually put in your power of attorney a direction to the child that your preference is for them to use your financial planner or the, the firm. Now, I would caution about mandating because what if there's a really good reason to switch financial planners? What if they do discover impropriety? You want them to be able to make those decisions. So that's a tough one. But if you have someone who has no conflict, that can be an easier decision to make. And someone who's really knowledgeable, who doesn't have to be educated on how money works and how fees work and all of the nuances that can take a person literally years to get up to speed on. Now, let me direct this to children. So if you are, if you have parents, how can you help this not happen to you and your children, you and your parents? Well, obviously, first, have a discussion with your parents. Are you the power of attorney? Are you their executor? Are you the successor trustee? And if so, ask to be involved in the process. And there's some emotions around this, like, oh, this is their business. This is their private business. I can't insert myself into it. Well, if you've been named as a power of attorney, an executor, a successor trustee, it is your business to know this. It is your business to know this or to ask to be relieved of serving in that capacity. So it's helpful to take that responsibility and to, and to step into those more vulnerable uh, feelings that, oh, they won't like me, I'll be rejected, this will make them upset, it will cause conflict, etc. Also then, to you as a child, it would be really helpful when you're in this position, and if you haven't had time to form a relationship with your parents' planner, to understand what's going on, if you're just forced into this, to accept, to extend the same assumptions to your parents' financial planner as the court system does to someone accused of a crime, and that's innocent until proven guilty. So to do this, we really have to work with 
those vulnerable parts of ourselves that are, are fearful or skeptical, that have history behind those feelings, and to help them kind of step aside while you adopt a beginner's mind and become curious, asking lots of questions and giving yourself plenty of time to fully explore and comprehend the planner's process and the history, what they've done with with your parents. Remember that this is someone that your parents have trusted, or your, your parent, often for decades. And it was probably with good reason. Give them a chance to show you why they had earned your parents' trust. This is oftentimes not the time to change horses. <laughs> it's a South Dakota term. And they can be extremely valuable to you in helping you negotiate everything that needs to be negotiated. Because obviously, if you're in this position, your parents are in decline. And it's probably not going to be long before they pass and you're faced with all of the issues of closing out the estate and making all those decisions. And to have a planner that has all the documents, all the wills, all the tax records, all the insurance policy, knows where everything's at can be a huge anxiety reliever. I have found that the older a person is, the more they need a financial planner in their life. And I know this sounds so self-serving because I am one, but I used to think that the older a person got, the less they would need financial planning, right? That's important before you retire. Boy, was that a delusion on my part. I have come to absolutely believe in experience, that the older a person is, the greater their need for having that advocate, having that planner, having that person that has their back and is the repository of everything financial for them. So I hope this is helpful in, in presenting the other side of the coin, what you can do to be proactive to make sure that your financial plan, your financial planning wishes, your financial and emotional well-being are as well taken care of as possible by addressing these situations. And if you're a child, how you can really support your parents in this time of, of crisis and grieving and passage that can be so emotionally difficult. And when you throw all the financial technicalities on top of it, it'd be really overwhelming. So thanks again for li listening and thanks for your support. And let me know any thoughts that you have and or anything that, that is on your mind that you'd like to hear more about. So take care. Talk with you next week. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again 
for our next episode.